Suburban Folk is excited to be working with our sponsor, Podcast Production School. If you've ever wanted to learn the hard skills that are necessary to support your favorite podcast shows, Podcast Production School has you covered. They're an online course designed to help you master the skills and strategies needed to launch, manage, and grow podcasts. They help you learn everything from audio editing to show note creation to marketing and promotion. You can get started learning the process by downloading their free podcast production or launch checklist strategy. Visit podcastproductionschool.com slash go slash suburban. That's podcastproductionschool.com slash go slash suburban. When you sign up, be sure to use the code suburban dollar sign 100. That's capital S suburban dollar sign 100 to get $100 off your order. Check the show notes for links and additional details. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. $250 a month into my child's 529 from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for 80% of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables. So usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but at that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Greg. Today's topic is around heart health and cardiovascular disease, things you can do to be as healthy as possible, when you should seek out a cardiologist, and also items that you may not realize are related to your overall heart health. My guest is Dr. Anuj Shah. He's a cardiovascular disease specialist and the founder and director of Apex Heart and Vascular Care. He holds seven board certifications in cardiology and interventional cardiology. He graduated from one of the top universities in India, Gujarat University, in 2003 with six gold medals and honors. He completed a residency and fellowship at the University of Connecticut and published more than 50 articles and abstracts in peer-reviewed journals. He was trained in complex cardiac and vascular cases at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York. Dr. Shah has held leadership positions, including the Director of Vascular Interventions at Good Samaritan Hospital and Bon Secours Hospital in New York. He also has served as the Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai Medical Center. He specializes in treatment of circulatory disease, treatment of varicose veins, swelling of the legs, and venous ulcers. Dr. Shaw has also been named a top physician in the 2015 edition of the Leading Physician of the World and has been among the top doctors of New Jersey since 2015. He was recently featured in Healthline on artificial intelligence and AFib. Dr. Shaw, thanks so much for taking some time to join the show today. How are you doing? Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Greg, for having me and absolute pleasure being here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about certain considerations around cardiovascular disease and overall heart health. We've done a number of programs around exercise. And in particular, I am a runner by background, actually have been training for a marathon. So it will be interesting to see how lifestyle and exercise can fit into what the consideration should be around various different topics uh, related to cardiology. Can you start us off by giving your background? And I'd be in particular interested in what drew you into this specialty? Yeah, absolutely. So awesome to hear that you are uh, you are a runner. And so you have done marathon or? I have. That's awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm a, I'm an, I'm a wannabe marathon runner, you know, but I love <laughs> running and uh, haven't had a chance to run one. But I've seen a lot of marathon runner 
uh, runners as patients. You know, as a matter of fact, I used to work with Dr. Paul Thompson, who has uh, run Boston Marathon for the last, I think, like 40 to 50 years. He also represented the United States in Olympics, and he was my mentor. Big name uh, internationally on exercise uh, physiology and cardiology. And because of him, I actually came across a lot of avid runners, marathon runners, and uh, have a fair share of uh, speaking at the various uh, runners' uh, conferences and stuff like that. Um, but my quick background is uh, I'm Dr. Anucha. I am interventional cardiologist and vascular specialist, which means I go and I fix blockages in uh, people's uh, coronary arteries, uh, which are the blood vessels that feed the heart, as well as uh, other blood vessels in the body, and most importantly in the legs. Um, but along with that, I also do general cardiology, which is taking care of any cardiac issue, to be honest, you know, simple high blood pressure, abnormal EKGs, question about runners, all the way to complex arrhythmias and whatnot. Um, my background is I grew up in India. I, my, both my parents are pediatricians. My dad is a very famous pediatrician in India and has uh, he used to run the Indian Academy of Pediatrics uh, as the president for a number of years. So I grew up in a very academic environment. Uh, together with my dad, I ended up writing six or seven papers when I was in med school, uh, past med school, almost 17, 18 years now. Uh, with, you know, with really uh, flying colors, got um, good accolades, came here to the U.S., initially went to University of Connecticut, got my training there, and eventually went to the Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City for interventional cardiology, which is considered one of the top institutes for, in, for interventional cardiology, not only in New York or in the U.S., I would, I would call it uh, one of the top institutes in the world. Um, ended up getting experience in opening blockages where most people would not dare to. Severely calcific arteries, people who are not candidate for open heart surgeries, um, that type of stuff. Um, since then, I have, uh, in last 10 years, I have uh, worked as a vascular director at uh, several institutes, uh, had more than 50 papers published. Uh, I still teach. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Mount Sinai. And I started my own uh, medical practice called Apex Heart and Vascular, which is a premier cardiology and vascular institute. We have uh, six locations in uh, northern and central New Jersey, and uh, we take pride in providing cutting-edge, compassionate cardiac and vascular care. So with your parents having a background in pediatrics, was cardiology always your goal when you were in med school and then getting into residency? Or how did that specifically come about or catch your interest? It always fascinated me. From very beginning, I remember reading like cardiac physiology in med school. And even then, it just heart is an incredible organ. I feel like, I don't know, there is say, something about a myocardium that gets me so excited. If you think about it, it's the only organ in the entire body, which which is a muscle at the end of the day, but the muscle never gets tired. If you have a healthy myocardium, healthy heart muscles, technically, physiologically speaking, there is absolutely no reason uh, for the muscle to get tired. Imagine you are a runner, you know, people, are, people run marathons, some people are ultra-marathon runner running 125 miles. No matter how well-trained you are, your skeletal muscles always get tired. There is always lactic acid gets built up. Unlike that, cardiology, I mean, uh, the heart is an organ where it never gets tired and there is never lactic acid uh, production there. And it has 
it has certain features due to which the uh, the the depolarization and repolarization match in a fascinating way so i don't know from med school days i was very fascinated with with heart and cardiac physiology when i did my rotations clinical rotations um i remember my first uh, rotation in uh, coronary care unit and uh, i was just fascinated it's a uh, an incredible field you know we make a difference in uh, in people's health in uh, in a you know sometimes within seconds to minutes you know it uh, it really allows us to uh, make an impact in a very very ten- tangible way with the results uh, oftentimes visible very immediately and you know it brings in gets your adrenaline pumping you know you are dealing with complex decisions which is something i've always enjoyed living up to the challenge uh our split second decisions could uh, could mean a lot you know it could it could mean uh, the difference between life and death for people and also you know as a field we are almost always at the forefront of technology you know cardiology is something where we get all the latest uh, technology like latest gizmos all the new toys uh, if you will uh, but we are also at the forefront of data as uh, cardiovascular disease we have tremendous data so um, in terms of the the mortality that we have changed uh, as a collective group of cardiovascular disease experts is phenomenal i mean this is the only field within medicine where uh, we have reduced mortality by 20 to 30% collectively so people's number one leading cause of death used to be uh, cardiac disease uh, 20 years ago unfortunately it still continues to remain the top cause of mortality but the average lifespan has tremendously gone up and most people who were dying of heart attacks and certain simple cardiac conditions we can call them simple now uh you know we can we can very easily salvage and save those people so very proud to be a cardiologist and obviously I'm very passionate about it no matter what somebody's doing there could be a consideration for their heart health whether they're doing something detrimental or if they're doing something positive and I wonder with other specialties where it's more let's say obvious that something is going wrong like let's say ophthalmology. <laughs> I know probably pretty easily if I've got problems with my eyes, but maybe it's not so clear to somebody that they're doing damage to their heart. Do you find that that can be a frustration when you're having to see patients or guide people in the right direction for taking care of themselves? Absolutely. I think just like any other field of medicine, you know, lack of understanding, lack of education is huge. You know, I we see this all the time when people I mean everyone knows right that you should be eating healthy, you should be exercising, you should not be smoking, and yet people continue to do the opposite. And I always say that it's not about people knowing or not knowing what are good habits. You know, obviously as a community we have done a good job in educating people. There's a lot of awareness right now. Even with that, people have bad habits and I think it comes down to fundamentally people don't know how to form a good habit and people don't know how to continue to maintain a good habit. so that plays a plays a big role one of my biggest frustrations i have seen lately is in peripheral vascular disease which is blockages in the leg arteries and even to this date we have so many people who uh, end up losing their limbs they end up getting amputated because they have a circulation issue and then they get infection in their legs and unfortunately patients don't know about it doctors don't know about it it's a huge problem that often gets ignored or misinterpreted or both 
and the people end up losing limbs when a lot of these limbs can be saved. So amputation prevention is, is one of the big goals for cardiovascular community. I'm very passionate about that, uh, being an expert in opening people's uh, leg blockages and stuff. And uh, the lack of awareness in this particular area of uh, cardiology is baffling to me. A lot of people know about heart attack. A lot of people know about stroke, but there's just not enough awareness awareness about peripheral arterial disease. When I was doing some research and we were trading some information, I saw a significant amount of information about varicose veins. Is that related to these issues? Is that sort of an early indicator or are these completely different related topics? There's a, there's a great overlap between, uh, between vein disease in general and arterial disease. So, you know, when we talk about vasculature or circulation, there are arteries that feed the legs and there are veins that bring the blood back. And there is a tremendous overlap. For example, if when somebody is diabetic, they unfortunately end up having arterial and venous issues. And sometimes the symptoms are very similar. So what we see as varicose veins is, is literally the tip of the iceberg. Um, but there is, there is a large like submerged uh, area, you know, so there's a lot of e- people. Venous disease is common in anywhere between uh, 40 to 60 million people. You know, a peripheral arterial disease is in around 20 million people. So it is, these are obviously very common problem with tremendous overlap. Oftentimes, oftentimes people get vascular disease because they have heart problems. Oftentimes they get heart problems. Uh, they always at risk of heart problems because uh, they have vascular problems. And there is a tremendous overlap between the two. Um, so that's why it's important to keep an attention on all of them. So the good news is now it's easy to detect. There are, there are numbers of screening tests. First of all, it's easy to prevent. If you can't prevent it, it's easy to detect. And if you, if you do detect it, it's easy to fix, rel- relatively speaking, all these things. So the key is to find someone before it's too late. What would be an early indicator for somebody to say, okay, I need to make an appointment with a doctor or need to be taking some other preventative measures? So for cardiology in general, I think it all really does come down to risk factors. If you happen to have risk factors, you know, it's always a good idea to to see a cardiologist. So what are some of the traditional risk factors? Somebody who has high blood pressure, somebody who has diabetes, somebody who has uh, high cholesterol, someone who has history of smoking. And very importantly, when people have a very strong family history, of cardiovascular disease. So these are the five traditional, really big risk factors. On top of that, anytime people have symptoms. So what are some of the symptoms we need to pay attention? As far as the heart goes, any unusual chest pain or chest tightness or discomfort, any um, shortness of breath. Sometimes people have this, uh, out of nowhere, they get this immediate bout of sweating profusely, what we call diaphoresis. Sometimes people get uh, rapid heartbeat or palpitation or they feel like they're going to faint. Um, these could all be cardiac symptoms. Same way when we talk about vascular disease, uh, we've got to pay attention to um, things like um, pain in the legs, discomfort in the legs, aches, cramps. Um, again, most people do notice when they have these symptoms. What people do miss is when they have generalized heaviness they feel like um, they're getting Charlie horses, how some people describe it. Some people get cramps middle of the night uh, out of nowhere. Um, sometimes they just have this crazy itch in their legs and they can't figure it out what it is. And oftentimes that's a problem of a vein problem. So, um, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of the symptoms could be indicating a serious underlying cardiac or serious underlying vascular disease. So those are the reasons. If somebody has either those major risk factors, 
or uh, when they have any of those symptoms, they they truly should uh, should see a cardiologist. I'm a firm believer that if you are somebody who's even a, like close to 50 or above, it's always a smart idea to see a cardiologist. To get like a baseline, if nothing else, right? Just to make sure you're not missing anything. Exactly. Baseline, nothing else. Make sure you get properly examined. Make sure somebody checks your heart and, and make sure there is no crazy heart murmur or, you know, there is no like lack of pulses in any of your extremities. Uh, get a basic EKG. There are simple tests called ankle brachial index. It's a simple test where you check blood pressure of the legs and that can rule out a lot of vascular disease. Um, those things, you know, and, and just get it checked. And if you have family history, make sure your cholesterol is uh, appropriate with the guidelines. Uh, make sure your blood pressure is, is appropriate. Make sure you don't have diabetes. But more importantly, you don't have prediabetes. Oftentimes, people don't realize that prediabetes or borderline diabetes also has pretty bad consequences. So it, it, that's something also that should not be ignored. Let's talk about one of the items you mentioned, cholesterol. And I will say I fall into the family history part that you're talking about. So is of interest to me. Can you tell us about what the level should be, what the ratio should be to know that you're in range? And then I think in that same world is statins, right? What is the intent of them? Is there any concerns when you're prescribing a statin and then you know for anybody that doesn't want to be taking a pill every day or anything like that um, what could they be doing to manage their cholesterol uh, along with potentially a uh, drug regimen cholesterol is obviously a very interesting subject uh, big issue um, unfortunately there is no particular number that one can say is perfect or not perfect i mean when the cholesterol numbers are truly low, they're perfect, but there is no set number uh, that's that's true for everyone. So cholesterol guidelines now say the number should be tailored to the individual. Okay, it all comes down to, so for example, you, you said you have a family history, so it comes down to your own individual risk factors. And we got to determine what's your future risk. What is your 10-year risk from this point on until end of 2030 to get a heart attack or a stroke? or potentially, you know, having a major cardiovascular uh, catastrophic event. And based on your risk at 10 years, and then we do the same thing for 20 years. And based on those risk factors, we, we can determine people based on those who are at high risk or those who are at low risk. In reality, it comes down to when somebody has risk factors, we should try to lower the cholesterol as much as possible. Within cholesterol, there are there are three things. There is good cholesterol and there is bad cholesterol. Good cholesterol is what we call HDL. Bad cholesterol is LDL and triglyceride. So what statins do is they, they lower LDL, which is the, the, the most notorious and uh, most directly linked uh, bad cholesterol to all kind of bad cardiovascular uh, events. So that's why statins do lower LDL Statins also have a bunch of other potential beneficial effect apart from cholesterol lowering. And that's why when people have uh, high LDL, we recommend them to go on statin. We used to go by numbers uh, up until three, four years ago, and then the guidelines have changed. They are telling us not to go by numbers. If you do, if somebody does twist my arm, I would say the ideal LDL number should be below 100 for most people. That would be an amazing number, reduced risk. If you really don't have much risk factors, you can say below 130 is okay. And this is for LDL, okay, not total cholesterol. Um, 
if somebody has significant risk of cardiac disease, you know, they are, they are, they are diabetic or they have high blood pressure or they already suffered from a heart attack or stroke, then we really try our best to get the LDL below 70 if possible. So that's where we stand. Um, and then we also recommend what we call high-dose or high-intensity statins, uh, which has uh, a lot of benefit in reducing vascular inflammation. Because part of the concept is not just the cholesterol level, but is the inflammation of the inner lining of blood vessel, which also leads to uh, bad events and, and statins to reduce that. There are also a couple of other major advances that we should talk when we talk about statins. One is uh, uh, there are newer kind of cholesterol-lowering medication which are coming into um, limelight, and they have some incredible data to support. So one is for lowering cholesterol called, uh, uh, called uh, Repatha or Praluent. These are both PCSK9 inhibitors. You're probably going to hear about them very soon in big words. They're going to be as popular as statins, in my opinion, very soon. Um, both these medications work with a different mechanism of action, and they do cause dramatic reduction in uh, bad cholesterols. And they're only injections that you have to take once every two weeks. So they do have tremendous benefits. We will hear more about it. We are still waiting to get some really good data on hard endpoints, what we call. They are right now considered second or third line therapy if, if people are intolerant to statin. And another one is called Vasipa, which is um, Ecosapent Ethyl, which, is, which lowers triglyceride, which has some tremendous data in, in reducing people's likelihood of dying. So again, a lot of new excitement in the world of cholesterol reduction. But as far as statins go, you have to look at what's your risk factor. If you're high risk, really, really try to lower the cholesterol as much as possible. Risk factor meaning just that you're at a level that you need some sort of a prescription to help normalize your cholesterol level or risk factor meaning are you at risk of some kind of side effects from statins? Are there side effects to be aware of that would make somebody a better candidate versus not for being on a prescription? Yeah, so I mean, there are side effects, right? Like any anything else, there are always effects and side effects. One of the major side effects that statins can have is uh, muscle damage. You know, muscle damage can happen in a very minor form where you have a little bit elevation of uh, creatinine kinase, the muscle enzyme level, or it could be tremendous rise in, in creatinine kinase, what we call rhabdomyolysis, where all your muscles are getting destroyed and your kidneys go into failure because of that. That's a very, very, very rare side effect happens in less than uh, 1 in 10,000 people. I think less than 1 in 100,000, actually. Um, most people would get uh, a little bit muscle aches. Occasionally, they get in, uh, elevation of liver enzymes. Statin side effects are something that can be easily monitored. Within people who get statin-related side effects, um, you can switch around the dose. You can switch around type of statin. There are ways to deal with it. There are certain vitamins called coenzyme Q10 or CQ10 which can actually replenish some of that uh, lost uh, coenzyme and can actually end up reducing some of the side effects. So, um, you know, not everybody gets side effects. Uh, again, when I meant risk factors, I meant what is your future risk of getting heart attack or stroke? And if you have future risk of heart attack or stroke, which means you are what we call high risk profile, you should really try every effort to take statin. And if you have side effects, try to switch around if possible. Um, if that doesn't work, you can try coenzyme Q10. If that doesn't work, we can go to the newer 
uh, type of medications that I just mentioned, which really don't have those side effects. Prior to having those kinds of treatments, as far as diet and exercise, let's start with diet because I feel like that's what can sometimes get very confusing as far as low fat, avoiding carbs, protein, and so on. Are there some tried and true recommendations for diet that would help keep your cholesterol down? Yeah, so diet is is very tricky. It's again one of those uh, controversial subjects because there are so much is done and yet so much more needs to be done. Um, as far as cardiovascular disease goes, there's only one diet which has shown uh, truly improvement in cardiovascular outcomes, which is Mediterranean diet, which is uh, high in good cholesterol. You know, plant. You know, which has a lot of nuts and olive oil and stuff like that. Um, every other type of diet is probably good but you know every other type of like recommended diet which is low fat diet low cholesterol low sugar diet keto diet all those diets have you know there are a lot of proponents of these this uh, you know these different diet uh, you know types unfortunately none of them has demonstrated long term benefit for cardiovascular disease so there is no particular diet except for the one that i mentioned mediterranean diet which has shown that the future risk of heart attack or stroke is reduced. There are other benefits. You know, certain diets have more weight reduction. Certain diets will truly lower your cholesterol, which hopefully will translate into, say, you know, into reducing heart attack and stroke. But um, as far as diet goes, we, we know that stick to something, right? Try, you know, I think a lot of this is common sense. You know, try to avoid bad fat. Try to avoid unnecessary fat. Uh, same way, try to avoid, like, unnecessary carbs and sugars. Um, we don't recommend no carb diet anymore. Either go with a low sugar, low carb diet, or you can go with a low fat diet. They both work pretty good. And they both have benefits in uh, improving your strength and stamina and energy levels. It has improvement in uh, cholesterol levels as well as uh, improvement in weight reduction. So those are the diets I typically end up recommending my patients. Um, keto diet is something new. The jury is still out. We sort of have to see how much long-term benefit we're going to see from this. I know it's a tough diet uh, to stick to. You know, a lot of uh, people try it, but then they kind of give up on it because it's just not an easy diet to stick to. Remind me, does the Mediterranean diet generally include fish or is it mostly just straight vegetarian? So fish, poultry, uh, beans, and eggs, they're all part of a uh, Mediterranean diet whole grains, vegetables, fruits, moderate portion of dairy product, not a lot of dairy product in Mediterranean diet, and then limited intake of red meat. With emphasis on red meat in particular being the thing that's cut out of the overall diet. That's right. But the good thing is the red wine is part of Mediterranean diet. So. <laughs> red wine versus red meat. I'll take that wine every time. <laughs> exactly. Here was a question I had for you, kind of a little bit off topic. But again, when I saw some of your information, it was around heartburn medications, which is in particular, lately, it feels like those are also medications that have gotten some bad press. Uh, so related to cardiology, is there any risks as far as you're aware of or anything people need to, to keep in mind if they have chronic heartburn? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. So the medication that, that we're in, there's a lot of buzz about something called proton pump inhibitor or PPIs. So PPIs... Um, were supposedly everybody thought that there are some um, adverse cardiovascular effect. And unfortunately, the data is 
somewhat conflicted, but the current existing data says that we don't have enough data. That's what it says, that to say that PPIs are particularly bad for the heart. The one particular thing that that was bothersome because there's a lot of literature is if somebody is on certain blood thinners, if when somebody has a blocked artery, we put oftentimes put people on a medication called clopidogrel, which is a type of blood thinner typically people get after getting a stent. And there were early on initial data saying that uh, when people get um, people get proton pump inhibitor, it actually reduces the efficacy of clopidogrel. In other words, if you have a heart attack and have a stent and you need this very important blood thinning medication, by the virtue of being on heartburn medication, it actually eliminates the good effect um, and then it can subject you to risk of heart attack. So that actually got a lot of bad press. Uh, since then, there have been studies looking at this and they really haven't uh, found enough evidence to suggest against it. Um, you know, we are still researching this more, but right now there is no convincing evidence to say that that heartburn medications have really bad impact on causing any kind of heart attack. So I actually, for my own patients, I give them heartburn medications without any hesitation. As a matter of fact, it can eliminate some of these atypical symptoms because, you know, the reason it's called heartburn is because people feel like they're having a heart attack. And actually being on heartburn medication reduces that and it reduces anxiety of patients, but also anxiety of doctors because sometimes we get confused. So I'm, I'm very comfortable telling my patients to take the heartburn medications. So let me restate that back to you. So the actual potential added benefit of a heartburn medication is so that you, if you're actually having some sort of a heart issue, you won't think that it's just another heartburn, <laughs> that really it might be something else going on. It eliminates an, an unnecessary simulator, right? Uh, so heartburn is a great mimicker of a true heart attack or a heart angina pain. And, and you know, you're eliminating that one cause, you know, by, by taking the medication. Hopefully it's effective. And then you don't get that symptoms. So you don't get fooled that, you know, because oftentimes people get these symptoms and they, they feel like, it is heart attack, and we they end up getting unnecessary testing. On the flip side, um, you know they they're not on medication, and they get the symptoms, and then they feel and they are actually having a real heart problems, but they just think, oh, it's probably a heartburn. So it goes both ways, you know. So I think uh, it actually helps eliminate this unnecessary mimicker out of the way. Yeah, so that people are not just ignoring <laughs> what could be a bigger problem because they think it's just another case of heartburn. Okay, interesting. So let's go to one of the big ones I think that people think of in your field of coronary artery disease and blockages and what can cause blockages. So I think of this being one of these things that out of sight, out of mind, like we were talking about at the beginning, that people don't really think about ways to prevent blockages and just living healthy until unfortunately they're starting to have signs that there's a problem. And at that point, not that it's too late, but it's further along than, than it could otherwise be if they're taking care of themselves and reducing risks of blockages. Yeah, no, absolutely. So coronary artery disease is, uh, is a blockage of the heart arteries. And, you know, it really is one of the biggest, biggest uh, issue that leads to people's mortality. I mean, Globally, it affects more than 110 million people and causes close to 10 million deaths per year, which basically constitutes for, you know, almost one fifth of of all causes of mortality. So, 
In other words, more people die of heart problems and coronary artery disease, especially than all the gun-related violence combined, all the, um, I hate to include this, but all the pandemics that at least up until now what we have seen, uh, combining that, combining that with any terrorist attacks, combining that with any uh, top five cancers. I mean, coronary artery disease is that big of a lethal killer of humanity up and still, even to this date. So it's obviously a very serious issue. And unfortunately, you know, it got a lot of good press and people used to think all about it. And I feel like lately we are seeing a resurgence where um, older people get it a little bit less so because, you know, they're on the good medication and stuff. But on the other side, the younger people, it used to be a disease of people in their 50s and 60s and 70s. But lately we are seeing this in people in their even 30s and 40s. Uh, which is shocking, you know, and uh, it never used to be the case. I think it's because of um, unhealthy lifestyle, again, reduce, uh, ignoring the risk factors and obviously early detection. Uh, that's how we pick it up now. Um, so we are seeing a resurgence of it. So it's a big problem. How do we avoid it? Um, we avoid it by controlling risk factors and getting checked, right? So if you have, again, as I said, high blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, smoking, or any family history of heart problem, you get checked. You get seen, you get an EKG. If you have any symptoms of pain, pressure, tightness, discomfort in the chest, sometimes pain, pressure, tightness in the left arm or the jaw area, if you have shortness of breath, if you have unusual sweating or what we call diaphoresis, if you have feeling like your heart's racing or skipping beats, uh, if you have feeling of impending doom, if you have a feeling that you're going to pass out, all those could be symptoms. So get it checked. Checking is very easy. Simple electrocardiogram can tell us a lot of uh, things. Oftentimes, people need more testing, like putting them on a treadmill and doing what we call a stress test and, and figuring it out if people have uh, blockages and disease or not. And that way, we, you can pick it up. You can, uh, you can avoid any bad con consequence. And obviously, you know, healthy lifestyle, controlling your risk factors. As you said, exercising is great. Controlling and eating proper diet those things can truly prevent you from getting the blockage in the first place. How much does stress play a role in this, if any? Especially, like you said, it is kind of alarming that you've got younger and younger cases of people dealing with these blockages. Is there other factors like that beyond diet and lifestyle exercise or like smoking, <laughs> you know, the sort of the obvious ones that can also be pointed to? Absolutely. So, so stress is actually, unfortunately, playing a huge role in this. And it's something that, you know, something that was not well known up until several years ago. And now we know that, that, that emotional stress, mental stress, psychological stress uh, plays a huge role. Because what happens is uh, when there is a lot of stress, you're always in this flight or fright mode. And the reason we know this so well now is because we have all these incredible devices, right, which are which are devices where you can measure, like like your uh, Apple Watch or your, you know, Aura Ring and Whoop bands and uh, Fitbits. These devices can measure your biomarkers. It can measure, uh, you know, most importantly, a biomarker called heart rate variability. So it tells us that uh, that what's the overall variation of your heart rate. People who are in constant stress they have less heart rate variability because they're always in this flight or fright mode. They're never, you know, at, at peace. So their ability to change their heart rate 
quickly or dramatically is very reduced. So when people have very low heart rate variability, we know that, um, you know, and then we can we can monitor this. So so low heart rate variability is actually a, associated with, with poor cardiovascular outcomes. And people who, are, who can manage the heart rate variability, and you know, and this is of what we call autonomic function, right? So heart is a muscle, just like any other muscle. Your nerves control the heart, right? Your nerves control muscles, right? So same way, the nerves that control the heart are called autonomic nerves. Within autonomic nerves, there is sympathetic and parasympathetic, which is your flight and fright, right? So one tend to increase the heart rate and blood pressure, and one tend to lower it. And at the end of the day, it's all about the balance between the two. And this heart rate variability, resting heart rate, vagal tone, bunch of biomarkers you can measure based on these variable devices has shown us that when people have um, this poor heart rate variability and some of these other biomarkers, they actually end up dying more. They have more heart attacks. They have more arrhythmias. They get more high blood pressure. They get more uh, sleep disturbance and stuff like that. So now we know that stress plays a huge role. And the contrary is true as well. When people have less stress, when they have uh, things like meditation, things like, um, you know, when they do proper sleep, whether it's the duration of the sleep as well as good quality of the sleep, when people do gratitude practice and and know how to center themselves, when uh, people have positive emotions and positive attitude, all these things, which is opposite of stressor, they actually tend to improve your heart rate variability and they actually tend to improve your cardiovascular outcomes. So stress is definitely a big one. And also we know that people who are under stress are, are the very people who are more likely now to have poor lifestyle. They're going to sleep less. They're going to exercise less. They're going to eat unhealthy. They're going to be a little bit depressed or anxious, leading to very unhealthy eating habits, um, higher risk of smoking and other addictions. So stress plays a role in, you know, they get more high blood pressure. So stress plays a role in a lot of different ways. Emphasis on sleep, um, meditation, which I think can probably take on different forms. And then, like you said, trying to recenter, which I think is probably similar to meditation. Do you tend to point your patients to particular specialists that have treatments or therapies for making sleep better or just certain types of meditation? How, how do you go about pointing people in those directions to manage stress? Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, I, I sort of sit down with them and I explain to them, I explain them the importance of why this is important. Uh, I oftentimes encourage them to, to you know, again, sometimes people get data fatigue, but I tell them to at, at least gather some data, wear a monitor, wear a Fitbit. So they know where their heart rate, they, they know where their heart rate variability stand. And based on that, I, I tailor the therapy to them. Um, unfortunately, you know, we, we still live in an era where there are no, um, you know, we, we, we still need more data to, to suggest what we want to suggest. As far as sleep goes, it's not just the duration of the sleep. It's also about the quality of sleep, right? So how do you improve quality of sleep? It's, it's difficult. It's difficult for us to tell people how to, what we know is, is calming practices, you know, whether it's mindfulness, whether it's practicing gratitude, whether it's practicing uh, meditation, whether it's uh, whether it's exercising. All those things lead to uh, reduce the heart rate variability, and it actually improves the quality of sleep, not just the quantity of sleep. So those are the things I gear uh, and, and suggest people to go for. Um, there are no major specialists um, in the medical field who are specializing in this 
particular aspect up until now, but it's changing dramatically. And, uh, you know, these are areas where things like artificial intelligence will come into play, biofeedback mechanisms will come into play. And, um, you know, there are a lot of apps now which can actually help people. There are apps like Headspace, which is, is you know, demonstrated to reduce stress level for people. There are, um, you know, there's, there's apps called Calm. Like there are a lot of different apps. So, you know, we are still trying to see if these things uh, stand the test of time, you know. It's good to see that they are reducing the biomarkers and, and risk factors. What we are interested in seeing is you're going to see long-term benefit from these things or not. I will say in regards to data fatigue, I'm about as paranoid of the data collection of your Googles, your Apples, your Amazon as anyone. But I feel like if a cardiologist was telling me I needed to start monitoring that, I'd take it a little more seriously and maybe look at the data a little bit closer. So <laughs> for any patients out there that if, if you have your, your doctor telling you that maybe getting some more monitoring on it, that's probably a good reason to uh, not be like me and be paranoid of all the data collection. <laughs> At least for a little bit. I always tell my patients, it's good to do it at least for a little bit so you know where you stand. And then once you have an idea, that's it. Don't go crazy and don't go, you know, because you're right. I mean, there is another side of it where people get obsessed with this and that doesn't help. You know, I had actually one patient who would take her own blood pressure, I think like 40 times a day. Oh my. And she would write down every single blood pressure number and every single day. 40 times a day and then she would bring that the diary to for me to review the blood pressure numbers and i think it's uh, you know it's a little bit too much you know so <laughs> <laughs> yeah somewhere between 40 times a day and at least once a day <laughs> yeah, yeah might be the right amount you talked about diabetes a bit uh, let's go a little bit further into that cuz i think it's something else especially for the american lifestyle that we hear more and more about especially related to overall sugar intake which you also uh, acknowledged as something for people to be mindful of. What is the link between diabetes and heart health? And then what role does sugar intake play in this? Obviously, it depends on the type of diabetes you have. Right. So diabetes is actually one of the biggest one, right? People, when they have diabetes, their risk of cardiovascular disease is like 250% higher than people who don't have diabetes. And you have another risk factor, the risk is not double. So I always tell people that two times two is not four in medicine. Two times two is 22. Why so? Because when people have diabetes, the risk of heart disease, it's twice as more as much more than non-diabetic. And when people have high blood pressure or smoking, that risk is twice as much than normal blood pressure or non-smoker. But when you have both, when you have high blood pressure and you have diabetes, or you're a smoker and you have diabetes, your risk is not four times more. Your risk is 22 times more. So this is why diabetes is tricky because diabetes and other comorbidities can lead to major impact on the heart. So why so? Because what diabetes does is it actually really changes the way body metabolizes the fuel. Because most people, when we talk about diabetes, they, they are insulin resistance. They're not getting enough, uh, their insulin gets resistance. So they're not getting the sugar that you see, it's in the bloodstream. It doesn't go to the vital organs because it only stays in the bloodstream. Because of that, the vital organs now will start utilizing fat and, uh, you know, will take this uh, unhealthy metabolism leading to production of free fatty acid, which is this uh, byproduct. Because you can utilize uh, the good fuel, now utilizing bad fuel, leading to this bad chemical in, in, a, in a way. And when these bad chemicals get released, 
it starts causing blockage formation. The blockage formation almost always happens in smaller arteries first, arteries which are small in size. So what are the small arteries? Eyes. So that's why diabetics get oftentimes eye problem and retinopathy and, and, and blindness. It causes kidney problems and it causes circulation problem because the leg arteries, especially the tibial arteries, are very small. And they causes loss of limb, you know, ulcers that won't heal and lead to amputation. And finally, the heart arteries, right? So coronary arteries are also relatively small in size. And, and that's where the calcium and blockage formation happens, leading to heart attack, leading to multiple blockage formation, requiring open heart surgeries and whatnot. And unfortunately, diabetes also affect nerves. So when nerves are get affected, people don't get the symptoms. They don't feel the same pain. The way non-diabetics feel the leg pain or the, or the chest pain, diabetics won't feel that oftentimes. So this leads to silent heart attacks, undetected ischemia and blockages. And that's why diabetes is pretty serious and dangerous. Uh, sugar intake definitely plays a role because um, you know more your sugar intake, poor your glycemic control and poor your diabetes control, which does in turn lead to uh, worsening of these outcomes. I assume... Most people that have been diagnosed with diabetes presumably have a pretty regular schedule of seeing their doctors. So hopefully that means that is any symptoms come up or any indicators, all the things that we were saying about monitoring levels and so on um, will come to the forefront. I, I mean, I hope so. I think most diabetics should do that. Nowadays, we have these incredible devices, which can also, you know, just like what I said, biomarkers, we have devices which can do your sugar monitoring, you know, without having to poke yourself with a needle a lot. So I, I think the way I see my diabetic patients, they are divided into two categories. There is this more educated, usually tend to be more younger population, which are, you know, more cognizant and aware, and they really want to control the diabetes and they actually tend to live an amazing life you know once your sugars are well controlled and you're you don't have other risk factors you don't have really bad impact and then i have this other category unfortunately of diabetic population where people are very ignorant they have poor understanding they don't have the means sometimes sometimes they have so many other comorbid conditions or they've already suffered from sequelae of diabetes you know they don't have good vision or they don't have good you know, good heart, or they already had a stroke. Um, and these are, this is the, uh, this is the negative feedback, you know, this is a vicious circle where they already have disease. Now they can't take care of them. So they get worse and they continue to, uh, to have this downward spiral. Uh, but again, you know, the key is to educating people and trying to bring them from that category into the earlier category of healthy, more educated and more controlled diabetes setting. So again, diabetes is one of those. It's preventable. It's totally preventable. People who take ownership of their health, they can re reduce any of these complications. Tell me if I'm making this up, but along the lines of alternatives to the standard sticking your finger and um, getting your le levels, there's also technology now that once you get a reading, you can send it to your doctor directly, right? So that they can also see any of your readings and just your overall checks more or less real time. So you're not necessarily having to go in as often for regular checkups, but your doctor can see if there's some sort of abnormal 
um, readings coming through. Is that true? Is that kind of technology that's also available? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So there are a lot of devices which, uh, you know, you can just, right now, the way the most commercial devices are, uh, they are called glucose monitoring sensors. So they have infrared technology and they can measure sugar without having to like take the blood out and do any of those uh, poking mechanism. And they all cloud-based. So once they have the numbers, they automatically get uploaded on the cloud. So you don't have to keep monitoring it. The numbers are already there and the doctors can see it. Uh, I think one of the most exciting thing is uh, big tech companies are getting into this. Uh, I, you know, again, the rumors are that Apple, Google, they're all working into um, getting this glucose monitoring sensor. I think rumors like Apple Watch will soon start getting uh, blood sugar monitoring the same way. Um, you know, Google has some products. I've, you know, again, these are all buzz and rumors. So, um, but yeah, pretty soon we're going to see incredible um, advances where uh, smartwatch will, will detect your sugar numbers. And uh, I think that will make a huge difference in the way we are treating our diabetic patients. People need to take responsibility, if that's the right word, for their own health. And these types of advances hopefully will make that as easy as possible for maybe the folks that aren't as inclined to stay on top of their own health as others. There is a device. Dexcom has a a watch which can do glucose monitoring. So I I don't want (laughs) to... You know, I mean, I, I said Apple and Google are making one, but I know that already other companies are ahead of it and they already have these devices out there. It's all about, I think, removing friction points, I guess, for people to have excuses <laughs> not to be taking a proactive role. And I think, you know, exercise is, I mean, I know we started talking with exercise, but I think um, exercise is at the end of the day, one of those incredible things which can pro- prevent people from getting diabetes or getting their diabetic you know, control much better and reduce all kind of cardiovascular risk factors. And again, tons of uh, wearable devices, tons of apps, which can be motivating, you know, telling you the right type of exercise and whatnot. Let's kind of go to that as our final topic, as far as exercise is concerned. And we've certainly established that exercise is important for overall cardiovascular health is there certain guidelines that people should be working with or under to make sure they're getting enough exercise or, Hey, are they like me running marathons and actually doing more harm than good? What, what kind of guidelines do you give folks around exercise? Yeah. So I think it also comes down to very similar to cholesterol management. It comes down to your individual goals, right? If you are somebody who, who is overall an elderly person and, and just re- looking out at making sure they improve their cardiovascular. Cardiovascular guidelines are very st- simple, actually. They said you need to be exercising 20 to 30 minutes um, in a day for four to five days a week. It's not, not a lot. It's not crazy. And, you know, it's, it's a cardio exercise. So any exercise that increases your heart rate uh, to a degree and increases your blood pressure a little bit and, you know, what we call whether it's a treadmill or it's elliptical or stationary bike or whether it's swimming, anything that increases your cardiovascular. Um, and, you know, the target heart rate should be around 60 to 70% of uh, based on your age. So everyone has a, a target heart rate. So it's you, you take the number 220 or 220, you subtract your age from it. So, for example, if I'm 40 years old, you know, 220 minus 40 is 180. 60% of that will be um, 
will be like 144. So, so my target would be around 140 to 150. So I need to be exercising in a way where then my heart rate goes up to like 140. It stays there for five minutes and, you know, start a little bit lower. Peak would be around 140 to 150. And then you have a, you know, you have a slow down, like a warm down phase. And that's it. That is perfect for cardiovascular. Now, if you have different goals, then then you need different form of exercise. You know, we always recommend that full body exercise is better than just using one muscle group. The, uh, the you know, if you are younger, more athletic, then high intensity interval training or HIIT training actually has some good benefit because you can accomplish more in a short time. Um, you know, you obviously have to be careful about um, making sure you're not hurting your joints and stuff like that. Uh, as far as runners and marathons go, um, phenomenal. I mean, runners, you know, tend to have incredibly healthy heart. They tend to have incredibly strong vagal tone, what I said initially. So that's your parasympathetic system, the healthier of the nerves that control the heart. And, uh, you know, they tend to have baseline lower heart rate, which allows them to go much fast, you know, that allows the heart rate to go longer, you know, so you have much more room to go up. The one thing that you have to be careful is very, very few super athletes, I would say, will develop something called athlete's heart, where the where because you are practicing so much, you're in such a runner that your actually heart rate becomes so low to a point that you can actually feel dizzy, lightheaded, and sometimes people pass out. Again, it's very rare, uh, but being an ac- academic, I cannot go without not mentioning that. Uh, but overall, just running, exercising of any form is phenomenal. That sounds uh, pretty similar to my regimen, so I'm happy with that answer. Uh, those were the main topics that I had. Is there anything that we didn't cover that is worth mentioning to folks? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm very passionate about the vascular disease and vascular health. And uh, I, I think a lot of your listeners are probably in the younger age, but I'm sure they have, um, or they're, they're probably all kind of age, but I'm assuming like, you know, there is a population which I think is not privy of the information that you and I and our listeners are. Um, and sometimes they they just have so many risk factors they don't understand, but we are seeing these amputations a lot in peripheral vascular disease. Peripheral vascular disease, in my opinion, is one of the big ones that's often missed. It should not be missed. It's It's actually relatively easy to detect and fix and prevent. And amputation is not fun. When people get amputation, when they get amputation of even one tiny pinky of one toe uh, or one toe on one foot, these are the same people who will end up losing their entire foot or entire leg on that side and the same people who end up losing the other leg. And this leads to this this cascade, which can be pretty pretty dangerous oftentimes. So vascular disease is very integral. Legs are the window to the heart. So I always tell people that if you have leg symptoms, don't ignore it, get it checked. The testing is very simple. I think for most people, when you hear the word amputation, I mean, that is major, (laughs) not only for going through the initial procedure to have whatever limb amputated, but as I understand it, there are a lot of psychological uh, barriers to get through after the fact, um, if you really have to get to that point. And there's also a concept of limb loss without amputation, right? Sometimes people have such vascular disease that they actually haven't had amputation, but for all practical purpose, they're living a life as if they don't have a limb. You know, they have so much pain or they have so much swelling or they have an ulcer that's not healing and they can't even go and pick up their mail. They can't even do simple chores um, without hurting. 
and uh, you know a lot of this is so preventable so this is something that you know should really be brought to limelight you know we actually have a lot of interesting campaigns there's a white sock campaign in september we all wear like white socks to work to raise awareness for peripheral arterial disease there's a big movement to uh, to save limbs save lives and uh, prevent amputation and prevent any kind of uh, vascular disease varicose veins again another big part of the same thing i think that's definitely invaluable for folks to be aware of. Well, Dr. Shah, do you want to go ahead and give folks your contact info or links to your website? And if you happen to be on social media ways, people could interact with you there as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. So, you know, my my website is called uh, www.apex, which is A-P-E-X, apexheartandvascular.com. Um, you know, everybody in their heart has an apex. So that's how I, we came up with the word apex. Um, so that's, that's the website, apexheartandvascular.com. And, uh, uh, you know, we have a very active social media account with Apex Heart and Vascular, um, as well. And, uh, you know, we have our email, which is called, uh, shoppractice at gmail.com on our website. Um, any questions, any issues, I'll be very happy to answer. If anybody has an email, they want to get in touch with me they can also get in touch with us on social media whether it's facebook instagram or linkedin or twitter we're active on all of them and we'll be sure to post all of your information in the show notes as well so that our listeners can easily just click there and get in touch with you and dr shaw i really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today i think it is very beneficial the things that you're communicating to folks and making sure that they keep in mind for not only themselves but their family and loved ones thank you so much Greg. absolute pleasure and thank you so much for uh, inviting me and uh, this uh, incredible podcast if you enjoyed this episode please leave us a review on apple spotify google play or wherever you get podcasts if you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes please hit the subscribe button If you'd like to help us even further, visit SuburbanFolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network with 12 other great podcasts. Head over to SuburbanFolk.com for links to their shows. We're also part of the Ring Media Network. Go to RingMedia.com to learn more. That's R-R-I-N-G Media.com.